Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long-format, casual conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. They might be climate scientists themselves, they might be social scientists. So far it's been mostly oceanographers, to be honest, because that's where my network starts. That's how I uh, am connected into the climate research community. And this week was no exception. I had a very pleasant and enjoyable chat with Alexander Brearley, Alex Brearley, who also works at the British Antarctic Survey. He's an observational oceanographer. He goes out to sea. He uses gliders, um, other sources of observational data to try to understand how mixing works in the ocean. Uh, We had a very nice chat. We talked about the uh, work that he's done on the Dimes Project, which was a large-scale mixing project in the Southern Ocean. We talked about Orchestra, which is a newer project, a large UK project that he's involved with. And uh, yeah, just generally had a really nice chat. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. Thanks for streaming or however you have uh, decided to access this podcast. Yeah. So please do uh, keep the feedback coming in at ClimateSciPod on Twitter. Um, you know, positive feedback, ways we could improve things, things you like, things you don't like. Um, I'm open to all of it. I'm not saying I'll change anything. Maybe I'll change some things. <laughs> Maybe I won't, but I do want to hear the feedback. Um, you know, especially if there's questions that you would like me to ask the guests, uh, things that you would like me to bring up, things that you would like to hear people's opinions on. That's all kind of the same thing, isn't it? Um, I guess. So, yeah, uh, I wanted to try something a little bit different today. It'll take a few minutes. Um, I wanted to kind of read to you from the State of the Climate 2017 report that just came out uh, a few weeks ago. It came out of the U.S., Um, And there's this fascinating little sidebar on the return of the Maud Rise Polina. And I thought I would just try to read a little bit of that and maybe talk about that a little bit. So if you're on board for that ride, stick around. If not, feel free to skip ahead. I won't be offended in the slightest. Okay, yeah, so it's sidebar 6.1 in the State of the Climate Report. And uh, it's written by a whole bunch of people, Swart, Campbell, Hoiza, Johnson, and uh, so on and so forth. I'll let you look it up. It's a free report. You know, you don't have to pay anybody. <laughs> the, uh, the U.S. taxpayers have already paid for uh, scientists to do the work, so it's all free and open to the public. Um, so, yeah, the Maud Rice Polina. I'll just get into it. I'll start reading. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just little bits and pieces of it. So the Maud Rice Polina is a persistent area of open water within the sea ice cover of the Southern Ocean, which overlies an area of elevated topography called Maud Rise, located in the eastern sector of the Weddell Sea. It's termed a Weddell Polina if it grows and migrates westward into the central Weddell Sea. And this is the crazy thing. We used to observe these things. We, meaning the research community, not, not me. I wasn't alive yet. I was born in the 80s. So this larger-sized polina was first observed in satellite data in 1974, and it recurred for each of the two subsequent austral winters. So imagine, you know, people saw this gigantic polina, 300,000 square kilometers in size, approximately. They saw this polina several years in a row in the Southern Ocean, just as the satellites went up and they 
uh, must have concluded, like, well, I guess this is a normal thing. We had never seen it before, uh, really, because there had never been satellites before. And there weren't that many ships that went down into the Southern Ocean, into the Weddell Sea. So you can imagine their surprise when it just went away. It just stopped appearing. Its 300,000 square kilometer size meant that it could contribute strongly to the transfer of heat from the ocean to the atmosphere in the winter, and hence instigate dense water production and the renewal of the deep ocean waters in the Weddell Sea. The 1974-76 Polina may have been responsible for up to 34% of observed warming in the deep southern ocean. That's wild. That's really hard to, to picture. Smaller features, perhaps associated with topographically driven upwelling of warm waters, have been observed subsequently, but a large Polina had not reappeared until recently, and unexpectedly during austral winters 2016 and 2017. And for an ocean nerd like myself, that was very exciting, and for my whole lovely nerdy oceanographic community, that was a very, very exciting development. This Polina, it's back. It's here. Um, so yeah, following this Modrise Polina development in 2016, mid-September 2017 saw the opening of a longer-lived and larger Polina over the same region. The 2017 Polina grew quickly, but its size remained quite static at approximately 50,000 square kilometers, until 3 November, after which it more than tripled in size over a period of a week. The sudden expansion is possibly the result of a considerable change in atmospheric circulation due to the development of a La Nina in early November, combined with an anomalously earlier spring ice edge retreat. So we're almost to the time of year where this Polina showed up last year. It's uh, mid-August when I'm recording this. This is going out in a few days, so I guess in about a month we'll see if the Weddell Sea Polina, this Maud Rise Polina, we'll see if it opens up again. Or uh, has it gone away? We're not sure. Nobody knows, obviously. They go on to talk about how they had a few Sukham floats, the Ar Argo floats that are equipped with biogeochemical sensors, uh, passed near there, near the region where the Polina occurred, and they go on to talk about some of the properties that they observed. And really, um, the research community does not know why these Polinias show up. We have some ideas. There are some theories floating around. And when I say theories, I mean it in the colloquial sense of a hypothesis. Really, to be accurate, I should just call it a hypothesis, right? The research community continues to speculate on the causes of the 2017 Polina and whether it is related to the 2016 event. It is possible that the 2017 Polina was caused by persistent subsurface ocean conditions that were initiating, initiated during the 2016 Polina, and or it was caused by preconditioning that resulted from anomalous sea ice divergence occurring late spring 2016. So here's a cool idea. Preconditioning mechanisms may include a buildup of subsurface heat, a precipitation deficit caused by prolonged negative SAM, and or reduced sea ice concentration. So they go on to talk about possible triggering mechanisms, um, small positive salinity anomalies, Basically, it's a, a very open question right now, and people have done some interesting work on it, but nobody knows why this thing occurs, why it didn't occur. It's still a big mystery. 
global coupled models generally exhibit a greater frequency of Maud Rye's Polina occurrence compared to observations, and have thus been a very valuable source of information regarding their causes and occurrences. Models suggest a preconditioning is needed by the slow accumulation of subsurface heat over several decades. Heat that would be lost after years of the Polina remaining open. That might possibly explain why the Polinas on the scale of the 1974 to 1976 event have not been seen in 40 years. So that's one idea is that you might need decades of preconditioning before you get giant Polinas. So maybe we had a few in the 70s, followed by a few decades of preconditioning. Maybe we're having a few now. Maybe after that there will be another few decades of preconditioning. But nobody's sure. Alternatively, models also suggest that increased freshening at the ocean surface caused by increased ice sheet slash iceberg melt, for example, may increase stratification and reduce the frequency of Polina formation. This is not an area that I've worked on directly myself, but I do have some experience with Polina formation and models because I ran this one-sixth of a degree high-resolution model, and uh, it was pretty easy to get Polinas there giant Polinias, they would just open up and swallow all the sea ice in the Weddell Sea. Um, I think I mentioned it on this podcast before, but I had this, um, to me, hilarious plot, which was, um, it was supposed to be a plot of mixed layer depth, you know, the, the depth over which the ocean properties are sufficiently uniform, like the density is uni fairly uniform in that mixed layer. And this plot was a, uh, well, it was basically a bathymetry plot because my model had so thoroughly and completely blown up that the mixed layer was all the way down to the bottom pretty much everywhere. So it was supposed to be a mixed layer plot. It was a bathymetry plot. <laughs> well, how did that go? I think that went all right. Should I just start reading people's papers on here? Should I just like pick a paper <laughs> and read little bits of it? Maybe that's what I should do in these introductions. Yeah, so Alex Spearley, let's get into it pretty quickly. Uh, you will hear some road noise when I recorded this. Well, when we recorded this and we had this conversation, it was a hot day, uh, so I had the windows open. I've said this before on here, but um, I've decided that I'd rather not bake my guests alive. So uh, if it's hot, I'm going to open the windows, and there's going to be some road noise and some you know, whooshing. I don't think it's too bad. I hope you don't find it annoying. I hope you find it, you know, reasonably tolerable or maybe even soothing, this kind of just low rushing sound in the background. Yeah, like, I don't know. I kind of don't mind that sound. Uh, I, I've never really... I've lived a few different places, and sometimes I live next to busy roads, and I, I don't really mind as long as the dominant sound is that kind of, you know... Just, air. It's like a river almost, you know, that whooshing sound of cars going by. You know, of course, ambulances and things, that's, that's something else, but I don't know. I, f I found, I find that sound weirdly soothing, the kind of that whooshing road noise. All right. So without, uh, yeah, let's just get right into it. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you enjoy the chat with Alexander Beerley. Um, he's not on Twitter, I don't think. So if you want to get in touch with him, you'll just have to look up his Bass webpage and send him an email. 
he's very friendly and very approachable. And uh, so do feel free to do that if you want to get in touch with him. Here we go. Okay, Alex Brearley. Enjoy. It will. <laughs> I'm determined. <laughs> You're determined. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've got my backup right there. So that's, that's recording. You've got your laptop going. Yeah, my laptop's going. <laughs> and I've also started... So now I'm going to like... I still don't want to annoy the guest with it. You know, it's kind of... Oh, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's so fine. That's away. fine. No, no, that's but fine. every now and then I'm going to glance over and yeah. make sure... Jackie's actually recording. ...that it hasn't crashed again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Uh, yeah, that's, fine. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. It's always nice to chat you, right? So uh, yeah. that's cool. You got, no, no, you got a second bite of the cherry? Yeah, that's right. We had uh, we had a really nice conversation last time. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> only only we got to enjoy it. it that's right. Well, there was, like, there, was, there was like 30 seconds at the start, I think. Wasn't that's it? true. I haven't, I haven't released that. <laughs> Maybe that's I should, the trailer. I should have penned it. Yeah, I should put that on the start of this one. It's like, here's the first 30 seconds of the last time we tried to have a conversation before... Garage band crashed. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. But thanks for your. Before the fight you know, broke out, you know. We, the fight, you know, yeah. Scientific fight. We just got into <laughs> such a heat discussion that it couldn't, it couldn't yeah. go on air. And they never spoke again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes one of those weird, you know, things. You, you know, I, I don't think there are a lot of these in oceanography, but you know, when you're first a student, you come into the, the field and, you know, you, you start saying stuff and maybe making possibly naive comments about, oh, you should work with this person and do that. And yeah. then you learn about, like, no, no, there's a, a deep history there of these two people don't really like each other or they can't work uh, together. I don't think there's a ton of that in oceanography. Maybe a little bit. No, I've, 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 no I don't think there is, actually. Yeah. I've, I have had people who've... Yeah, I've had some experience of people haven't got on like that. Yeah. But, it, uh, yeah, it's not a... It, I would say generally as a field, it doesn't doesn't have some of the egos that I think some scientific fields have. Yeah, yeah, I saw that there was a bit of that in, in astrophysics here and there. Right. Yeah, lots of very big personalities and yeah. very big personality clashes and things. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we're lucky. I mean, I'm sure different folks have had different experiences with oceanography and I want to hear from them too, but um, I don't know. I think we're, we're re- generally speaking, we're a pretty supportive community. We kind of help each other out. We're generally, generally collaborative and you can find counterexamples, but I think you can find way more examples of people being collaborative I think that, I think that, yeah, I think that's right. I think it is. I think it is very much that way in this field. Um, I, I've had a lot of support from people who I've not necessarily even had direct contact with, or you know, not previously worked with. Mm-hmm. They've just been very generous in their, in their kind of wanting to share their knowledge and yeah. experience. So I think people like yeah, they like helping. You know, scientists like helping each other. Yeah. You know, generally, and uh, it, maybe it's because we're kind of. I know there's competition for funding and competition for things, but we're generally working towards the same thing. Like yeah. we want to understand this part of the climate system and the climate system as a whole and how it responds. So, and uh, I, I guess people get a little def- can get defensive when they're, especially when they're first trying to get established and they're trying to find their their niche and where they can contribute and maybe they feel a bit. And I, I felt a bit of that from time to time, just that feeling of like, oh, I, I need to get this little piece and corner so that I can. You know, make a contribution and be into the be in the community. Yeah, you want to be known as the authority who does X or Y, like when you're starting out. I think. It's and true. There's a big pressure. There's a big pressure for that. 
It's true. I feel like really following those feelings 100% though can lead you to an unhealthy <laughs> place. Very, very much you know? so. Very yeah, much so. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to find this balance where you like, well, you, you kind of use that impulse, that impulse to want to establish yourself, try to use it in a healthy way without letting it tip over into, you know, this destructive kind of selfish, you know, greedy sort of uh, feeling and approach towards research. You know, it, it, I don't I, I'm, I think I've done okay in striking that right balance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you do have to have some emotional maturity to make that happen. You do, yeah. and it's all, and it can also be kind of a little boring as well. If you if you're like, right, I really want to be the person who does X, hmm. and then that can kind of like exclude you from defining yourself in other ways in terms of doing other doing other things. So you know, I do a lot of stuff related to you know turbulence and autonomous vehicles, but I also enjoy like general physical oceanography, you know, general you know observational and modeling physical oceanography as well. So so I, I don't. You know, although I would say, you know, that's my specialism. It doesn't define me, I don't yeah. think. And I, I wouldn't ever want that to. I wouldn't want to be, you know, just that person. Yeah, that's right. I feel like I've talked about this one here before, but uh, Stephanie Downs has a uh, really healthy attitude. Uh, I was talking with her at an EGU, a big conference a couple of years ago, and I was describing the experience of going to a conference and looking at all the work and having a little bit of that feeling of like, oh, I wish I'd done a lot of these pieces of mm. work, which mm. is not... That's not where you want to be necessarily. You want to you want to feel like it's amazing that the work is being done, and it's amazing that the field is growing. And you don't want to be so selfish about it, right? So there's we're going again back to this balance of you know emotionally getting into the field and getting a piece of it for your, that you can identify as your contribution, yeah, while still giving everybody else enough room and space to contribute. But St- um, Stephanie Downs just basically said, well, I can't do everything. You know, she had, right. she had let go of that need to like yeah selfishly grab onto some bit of the of the science work to be done and just to kind of cling on to it she could say well I'm, I'm going to do my bit of it that I can do and I'm not going to worry about anything else and that's that's very healthy that's very, I think as well from yeah. a, I mean from, from a non-selfish perspective I mean it it's kind of interesting to go to those big meetings see the presentations and the posters that have been given um, and think oh if I'd have made a different decision at some point in my career I could have been doing that mm. you know rather than what I'm doing now yeah. if I'd have if I'd have chosen a different uh, you know career opportunity or gone down a different pathway in some research I did I could have been you know doing the stuff that you're doing mm. like, yeah like, like it's just kind of intriguing it's an intriguing yeah. possibility I mean I always think about you know in that context you know I still have a strong interest in you know because I do dominantly Antarctic oceanography but I, I still have a dominant, you know, I still have a strong interest in the uh, in the northern high latitudes too, um, particularly the overflows around Denmark Strait. Yeah. Uh, understanding what happens in the Norwegian seas and Greenland and Iceland seas, and um, yeah, so I, you know, I keep a, I keep, I keep some interest in that, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's something I do a huge amount of. Um, I have a PhD student who's working on um, processes to understand that but I but I often think when I when I go to you know this kind of meetings oh actually like you know I, <laughs> five five years ago I, I I was kind of doing stuff that was at the cutting edge of this and now now I'm just a little removed from it again it's kind of interesting yeah and it's uh I, I can't remember the exact form the analogy takes but you know you kind of uh, start in life and you have all of these possibilities all these paths in front of you you can, you can think about moving you know, along a tree right along That's a right. trunk and you go up and you have, you, then you start picking branches and then you yeah. start picking small branches yeah. and 
um, you know, you kind of run out of time to explore all of the branches and all of the, you know, and, and it can be um, weirdly painful to let go of some of those other possibilities because, uh, you know, you, like you said, and then in the future you kind of see, like, oh, yeah, that, that could have been me. I could have been off in that direction. Not necessarily, like, with, with a negative not necessarily negatively, but you kind of just have that sense of, oh, th those were possibilities that I did not take, and that's not, yeah. that's not what my life is going to look like. So you start seeing these ways that your life is probably not going to be, and it can feel a bit narrowing in some ways. It doesn't have to be, but that can just be the experience of it. You know? yeah. but, I, but I think scientifically there are different kind of thinkers as well. So there are, there are people who are really good specializing in very small mm. areas yeah. of research. You know, we really need those people in order to drive that, that field forward. Some very particular type of turbulence or something. Yeah, where, you know. but there are also people who are really good at making links and synthesizing between different and seeing connections between different strands of research. Yes. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think both of those kind of thought processes are really valuable. So I think, you know, it isn't just about specialization for everyone. It's about, for a lot of people, it's about integrative thinking and seeing the links between oh okay so you do this with turbulence and you do this with nutrient fluxes what, and what can we do with what can we do that links those two things yeah. together um, yeah that's important uh, thinking and it's hard too because everybody has their particular way of doing things they do everyone has their own yeah. style and, and each community has its own kind of style as well you know you know almost like its own language I guess yeah um, and so and so seeing picking out the important elements of, of, of that without losing scientific integrity is when you're making those kind of links is, is I think you know, important. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the UK, there's been a big push to move in those kind of integrated directions across disciplines. And that's probably where a lot of the interesting research is going. And it, it's been interesting watching the kind of communities, uh, or the community kind of going through a learning uh, exercise of, okay, how do we actually, you know, get physicists and chemists to talk to each other and access, for example, and how do we actually get, um, you know, physical oceanographers and biogeochemical oceanographers to really work together, yeah. like in Orchestra and Roses, yeah. and uh, it's been, yeah, and I, I can see it starting to happen, but it, it doesn't happen automatically, does it? You really do need people. Yeah, I mean, even within the same, I mean, even if you're within the same field, you know, even observationists and modelers within the same field can, yeah. can talk very different languages. Hmm. Um, what do you think you need for that? Like, how do you make that actually happen cor uh, properly? These kind of cross-disciplinary connections. I think, I think, I think there's probably no substitute for personal contact and communication, yeah. and that, and that, you know, that sometimes requires distinct effort on the parts of individuals who are um, very personally social mm. to, to to drive those kind of interactions to arrange those meetings to get those conversations really going um, as much as anything to allow you know allow those people to come together to work out what the actual kind of key questions are mm. um, you know it can come together through you know big questions being asked where no particular group can have has kind of monopoly on on power or monopoly on knowledge, I guess. Mm, yeah. Um, so it might be that that it doesn't happen through a kind of blue skies research call, but it comes through a more directed research call. Um, so you know, I, I don't know. Classic example of that is I mean, you, you you said roses. You know, that's the yeah. kind of that's the kind of classic example of that where um, where you kind of need both physical and biological knowledge to to get a clear understanding of the 
the, the Southern Ocean carbon pump mm. um, and without one of those elements you you just miss yeah. a huge part of the yeah. huge part of the story yeah and I like that you emphasize the community element of it because that's been something that's that's kind of fascinating to realize is just how much of science is a social sort of thing mm. you know and it's not usually presented that way you know it's usually presented as um, you know folks like us sitting behind a computer and you know, and it's certainly a part of it but yeah yeah there is this huge social element to it of, yeah um, and, and that's part of why as, as good as remote meetings are and as good as uh, you know in terms of carbon reduction as good as like having remote meetings are sometimes you need face-to-face meetings sometimes you need to get people in the same place they need to go to the pub together they need to have coffee together you need these random yeah. conversations with people you know to strike uh, not just to have ideas happen but to have that social cohesion like to make a socially cohesive group where people know each other and they see each other that's right I mean it's, yeah you, you, you can't you can't take away kind of behavioral psychology from mm. any element of work, I yeah, don't yeah. think. And you know, science is no exception to that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you, know, you say we are often presented as as kind of loners who who sit in offices and mm. or, or sit in labs um, and you know make measurements and make very precise things. And you're sure, there's an element of that in 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 the job. But you know, one of the most exciting things about being a scientist is that cross-fertilization of ideas between yeah. different individuals. So going to going to meetings and going to workshops and presenting ideas and you know having those ideas scrutinized uh, in in open forum is you know sure it can be intimidating but it's also really valuable um, and it's made and like you say those social interactions and that social interaction element to it it's really smooths that process mm. you know, if you can yeah. if you can if you can strike up those kind of this kind of interactions. Yeah, for sure. I guess that, that sort of distinction about the community thing is maybe missed in some popular science discussions because we really like having these individual kind of heroes. You know, you put up a Newton and you put up an Einstein and a Hawking and uh, look, it's... And so folks might have that. When you mention, well, I'm a scientist, they might think of that kind of person. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I don't know about Newton. I think Newton sounded like he was fairly anti-social <laughs> based on some of the biographies I, I've read. He had a, um, a, a kind of could have an aggressive personality based on what I've some of the things I've read here and there. But you know, Einstein and Hawking were, were super social, from what mm. I understand. You know, they mm. had lots of connections, and they were very much immersed in that scientific community. Yeah. And they were able to do a lot of their work because they were in that community, which sometimes gets me thinking about like. There must be lots of folks out there who, you know, would, would be totally capable of doing science and could make really good contributions, but maybe they're just outside of the community. They don't have that access to the community. Mm. And if we want to be more, you know, open and inclusive, that's something we'll have to think about is how do we lower some of those participation barriers and get more people involved. And um, at some level, I guess, that has to mean some funding because that has to mean, you know... Um, uh, the people do need to pay their bills and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think even within the science community itself, uh, I mean, you were saying how it's perceived from the outside, but I think even within the community itself, there's often misconceptions about mm-hmm. how things are done. You know, there's very much this kind of, I would say there's very much kind of linear, you think about the career path of a, you know, an average scientist, you might, you know, you might go and do a PhD, um, you know, and then there's a, then it's sort of accepted there'll be a period of time when you kind of do a, do sort of postdocs, mm-hmm. um, and then you might get you know you might get tenure or you might get a you know a, a position in a government research institute or whatever, and uh, you know and then 
and it's almost perceived as this very kind of lonely linear activity mm. where you where you kind of progress through these different stages. But actually, of course, the way that science happens is people, you know, not necessarily, you know, not everyone following that kind of that, that kind of path. Yeah. You know, so you know, you get huge amounts of, you know, I get huge amounts of technical support from from different people. I couldn't do what I do without 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 that with you know without that element yeah, to it for sure. uh, without people with those kind of those kind of skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think there's often even kind of misconceptions within the community itself about how science is done. Yes, and yeah. so and so it's not surprising that not surprising that the outside world is even yeah. more confused and you see you know a lot of job adverts and the, many of them say the same thing about like you need to be a world leader in x yeah. and you need to yeah. be the yeah. the stunning intellectual giant to drive this field forward it's like and that's right does, but, does that need to be everybody like, well no, that... I, no and actually <laughs> yeah. actually it's, it's actually it's actually unhelpful if that is everybody yeah yeah be, be, because you need people with specialist skills to make equipment work and you need people with special who have a real for what, what i do you need people with a real strong desire to go on uh, field work, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, and all these things. You need people, you know, who are really good at, you know, understanding data and limitations of data. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the idea of the, the, the kind of one world-leading genius who <laughs> writes all this stuff is, is, you know, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, those individuals do exist, but, yeah. but, but, but I would argue they are few and far between, actually. And actually, m- most of the really best people kind of, are able to surround themselves with with people who have specialist skills in other areas yeah. that support that that support that kind of that kind of science. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's uh, at universities that makes me think of how at universities professors are expected to have a bunch of PhD students, mm. um, you know, and and the kind of uh, outdated ideal I think that is sometimes attached to that is well, all of these people will go off and become their own independent researchers, you know, leading mm. their own research group in different fields, but um, unless there's a huge influx of money from various world governments like that sort of, you're not just going to have this infinite propagation of. That's right, know, and I'm I, yeah, I'm really conscious. Resources. I'm really conscious of that. I've, you know, I've I've actively said to my PhD students, you know, I, you know, I want you to enjoy to enjoy what you do. I want you to enjoy your research, and I'm but I'm well aware of the fact that you might not go on and do you know yeah, become an academic. Yeah. But but I don't I don't in any way view that as a. You know, as a, a failure on their part or a failure on my part. Yeah. You know that it, it's really for them to choose what they want to do with with the with the kind of skills they get through doing research. Yeah. Um, there's huge. There's a huge amount of stuff that can be done in the you know that can be done in the applied field that that is very very valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it, we, we say think about linear paths. You know, the reality is, of course, that. That linear path is a is a is a very as you go through from PhD to postdoc to to, to kind of academic to to you know full tenure professor, it, you know it's a very narrow it's a narrow a very narrowing stream and yeah. actually lots of people drop off along the way. It's a pyramid. Yeah, it's a pyramid. It's almost exactly. like it's a pyramid. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, but but you know, I, I don't view people going into other fields as a as a you know a failure. It's, right. No, no, you know, it's, it, it, it's 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 if you can share at least some of that kind of scientific um, enthusiasm, scientific aptitude and thing with, with them along the way, that's, yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah, that's yeah. right, absolutely. So it's, it's a, I think we have a responsibility that you've pointed to already to, mm. to frame that in a healthy way. Mm. It's just to be you know, honest about, yeah, well, the way the field is structured, 
like you just said, not everybody is going to end up as a tenured, you know, person yeah. leading their own giant research group somewhere. Yeah. It's just that's not a that's not going to happen. Um, so it's healthy for us as you know supervisors and potential supervisors to be upfront about that, and maybe to to learn a little bit more about the possible paths that people can take, you know, after their PhD, mm. and um, to to kind of. Um, help people with that transition if they transition you know out of academia into something else to make that a bit a bit easier because it can be can be potentially scary if you kind of feel if you've known this academic sort of thing you know your whole educational career to then like go out into something that I guess must be pretty different in some ways I haven't had really any experience you know in the I mean I think sector, it, but. I, I think as well for the I think it can be scary in terms of when you're immersed in this world you can think you can very easily think, can I actually do anything else? Mm. You know, so it can be scary from that perspective. Like, yeah. am I qualified to do anything else? Yeah. And that's one thing that can cross people's um, students' minds. The, the other consideration that they often have, the other concern I guess they often have, is will they be thought of amongst senior academics or senior, uh, mm. as kind of failures for, 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 for moving off into something else? You know, for, right. you know, are they going to get negative reactions in their own research institute for like oh they went off and did something else and you know yeah. I've known I've known great people who've gone off and done other things and uh, you know and uh, you know it, it's just it's it's just the way it is you know and mm. you know I, I view it I don't think we should view it as I don't think we should view it as what a shame that is to academia I think we should view it as what an asset that is to like other people in the world yeah you know. yeah absolutely and, and hopefully to feel like that we gave those students a valuable a really valuable life experience and working experience you know during yeah. their their time with yeah. us um yeah but, but also to take that take that kind of scientific knowledge into the wider world yes you know and, and yeah. inform public discourse and in mm-hmm. you know and, and and be able to take that you know it might be into industry it might be into you know, government, it might be into, you know, policy advice or, you know, all of those different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think anything that, you know, clearly you don't want everyone to be, you know, forced into that situation yes. at all. But, but, but I think when people do move into those other spheres, um, I think it's just a real kind of asset to those spheres to have, to have people who... Uh, have that kind of scientific knowledge because I think such a l- there's such a lack of um, scientific knowledge within public discourse mm-hmm. that that you know it, it it doesn't it doesn't upset me when people go it, 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 you know I, I find it vaguely encouraging sometimes <laughs> yeah like yes please go out into the world yeah. you know, we need more <laughs> yeah yeah I mean you know a... PhDs everywhere <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that's right but you know you 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 know you read things in the media or you read things and you you sometimes just sort of hang your head and go oh my goodness like how is this you know how is this being written and i think i think anything that can translate and improve the improve the standard of that public discourse is um you know is is a good thing ultimately yeah and hope uh, hopefully it will <laughs> i could I, i'm a lifelong I optimist just, so you know maybe that's you know yeah, that's thing. I think that's good. I try to be as well. Sometimes I'm more successful at being optimistic it, than, it can be than others. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think, um, yeah. Some sometimes I even think I, I maybe have an unreal, unreasonable level of optimism, um, but I kind of feel like, well, what's the alternative? I mean, you can either kind of be, you can 
bias yourself in the optimistic direction or what? What's the other? Do you just like fall into despair or yeah. do you, I don't know, do you stay angry all the time? Yeah. Maybe you should be angry all the time. I don't know. That's exhausting. You have to take care of yourself a bit. And uh, so you can't just stay <laughs> angry. I think staying angry all the time is, no. not, a, is no. not good for your mental kind of well-being. No, really. no. It's, you know, it's, it's very, you know, ultimately the only person's kind of emotions you can control are your own. Yeah. Um, mm. And so I think I think you want to put yourself in a place where you can, where you can be personally content. Even yeah. if you're not content with everything around you, you can kind of, you know, it doesn't it doesn't sort of cloud your cloud your kind of day to day thinking. That's true. I guess at the same time that we're learning that it's important to um, make noise and to you know if you, if you want the world to be different and if yeah. you want to see things change, it's yeah. okay to. In fact, you should make some yeah. noise and you know yeah. call your representatives and vote and things and yeah, yeah, have, yeah. have uh, some pressure on you know the way that things end up developing because. Um, I don't know, when I was younger, it w- was easy to be a little detached from, you know, political things. And I'm not suggesting we talk about politics, but I just found oh, the, process, it's, it's of, no, no, it's I just the process of engaging with it or not, you know, yeah. like getting in there or not getting in there. I guess that, yeah. you know, when, when I was younger, it was easier to detach from that a bit. But I guess part of what we're learning now is like, no, you, you need to be in there. Like, you need to be in the process. Because, um, you know... Yeah, you, you, you do. You do. I mean, I think, you know, I think... Um, as I say, without wanting to get into, into too much about politics, I do find the whole area of how you communicate with different audiences fascinating. You know, yeah. how, how, you, how you put across those kind of scientific messages to different audiences, fascinating. Um, how, you know, talking about particular messages, whether it be about environmental change or, you know, or, or climate or, um, you know, resources, um, how different audiences with different political opinions respond very differently mm-hmm. to the, to the language that's used um and I, and I find that whole aspect of kind of science communication very um interesting and i think it's something that in reality you need a quite a, a complex and kind of textured message to get across to lots and lots of different people one um, of the um Oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, uh, I had a really nice conversation in here with Cameron Brick, who's a social psychologist, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll probably do a bad job of summarizing it, no. but I thought it was so interesting that, uh, you know, uh, he's found, well, not just him, but his kind of field has found that people's sense of identity has a huge uh, amount of weight in terms of the decisions they make and the yeah. kind of arguments they're receptive to that people tend to. Uh, their identity comes first. Their feeling of like, oh well, this is the group or set of people that I, I want, belong that to. I want, that I belong yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That that comes first, and then uh, that makes people more more likely to either uh, ingest certain opinions and ideas, or reject others, or find reasons to reject them, mm. because um, we're really good as humans at like rationalizing anything. You know, we can find ways to accept yeah. arguments and yeah. to reject arguments. Yeah. And, uh, and part, that's just part of how we work to get back mm. to that kind of social psychology element mm. of it. Um, and so that it's really identity driven in, in a big way. So if you're going to talk to d- diverse groups, I guess, you know, about, about climate, about science, you have to deal with that puzzle somehow. Yeah. You have to like, oh, yeah. how do I say something that is going to, uh, that's, that's not going to push anybody away. That's not going to make anybody go, oh, those people, I don't want yeah. to have anything to do yeah. with those people. Yeah. And, uh, you just, you have to deal with it somehow. Um, so it has to get, you have to go beyond 
summarizing your you could you could do a really great job summarizing your science or the message you want to get mm. across mm. but if you have put any if they get any whiff of let's just say somebody who's maybe um, in the US I'm going to use the US term anyway yeah. like super conservative you know yeah. if, they, if they get a whiff of oh well this person's just trying to get me to agree to you know some big government regulation yeah they'll they'll reject the argument even if it's a good physical argument you know mm. they'll find a way to reject it and and if they're an educated person, they might even have more ammo they can use to rationalize and to reject the argument that you're... Yeah, yeah. Whether or not their logic is actually good or not is a totally different question. Yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had conversations yeah. that, you know, about, this, about this very thing with, you know, with, with friends about, you know, I think, you know, maybe it's a little, maybe this is a little too general, but I think, I think we're generally much better at talking to kind of liberal mindsets than conservative mindsets in... in in, in in science, yeah. I mean, in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, I think there's just that's just kind of unfortunately the way it is. Um, I, I have spoken to, you know, I, I've discussed about you know how, how how you get messages about climate across to um, to different groups, and you know, a, a lot of it is about framing it in things that people actually care about. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, the, the the fact that you know there's nothing, you, you know, you raise the example of. Um, you raise the example of, of kind of conservatives in the US and kind of antipathy towards climate change science there. But, you know, there, there's nothing inherently, uh, you know, to me that, you know, when you, when you look at ideology of different groups, there, there's nothing inherently, you know, wrong with kind of climate change as a conservative idea. I mean, in the sense of, you know, you're, you're basically kind of trying to preserve and, and conserve what's there. Yeah. You know, you frame it in terms of national security and, all these things, you know, all these things are very valid arguments for for, for, for doing things. I think it's just that, I, I think it's just that, you have to be kind of mindful about how you, how you, um, how you kind of explain and and, and rationalise particular things, and, and not use language that's deliberately isolating when it doesn't need to be. Mm. You know, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. To your point of you know framing things in a way that will not push someone who maybe feels a little more conservatively mm. away, mm. and I can't remember who the the speaker is. I'll have to try to look it up afterwards. Yeah. But I saw a little summary from a uh, someone was uh, down in London, I think it was, and they said, you know, um, here's one way you can frame the climate change discussion in a more conservative sort of way, maybe traditionally more mm. conservative sort of way. Mm. He said. You can say, well, there are you know, large companies that this is. I'm going to try to <laughs> try to summarize. Yeah, yeah. That large large companies and you know big big emitters of carbon who want the rest of us to subsidize their environmental damage. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That uh, oh, he called it an entitlement mindset. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you think you think you you know a large corporation or yeah. who's, whoever's doing the emitting, you think you're entitled Title to too. just put as much CO two in the atmosphere as you want. Yeah. And you expect the rest of us to pick up the slack. Yeah. That's not to, a to that's pay not for fair. It. Yeah. And that gets at one of the you know, uh, I think what is considered you know one of the more traditional kind of conservative ideas of that 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 fairness that mm. kind of sense mm. of like, um, you know, not uh, of um, the assumption of that it's good to try to aim for a, a reasonably level playing field of, mm. you know, not... Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, um, so I thought that was an interesting take on it that I hadn't heard before, saying, like, why, why do you, you know, a carbon emitter, think you're entitled to dump so much CO2 in the atmosphere and just put the problem off on anybody else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't really heard that grappled with in some way. Yeah. Um, 
it's, 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 it's fascinating. I, I say that the, the whole sphere of the whole sphere of communication and, and language around science is, yeah. is kind of is kind of just really interesting to me. Yeah. What do you think it is that we're better at talking to? Kind of the more traditionally uh, left-leaning or liberal kind of. Why is that? It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess it's a. I guess it's a very dynamic young field generally science you know it's kind of it's dominated numerically by uh kind of um you know younger people i guess i mean you know there are you know there are clearly senior academics who yeah, i'm kind of excluded from this but it's dominated by you know in terms of numerically there's lots of phd students lots of postdocs and those young people tend to i guess be more left-leaning and liberal in their in their kind of outlook i guess as well it's kind of it's kind of dominated by people who have um, benefited from the the kind of fruits of um, more open, kind of liberal, globalized society than possibly some parts of some other parts of society. Yeah. So you know, it, you know, it's very, you know, it's very normal for you or me or whatever to be like, right? I'm going to like. I'm going to the US next week or I'm going to Switzerland next week for a meeting or whatever. But for a lot of people, of course, these are not open possibilities. They, they're, they're much more focused around their local community. Um, there's a much stronger, they have a much stronger sense of, um, of, of, yeah, of, of community within those, right. within those small groups. Yeah. Um, the tight, tight, tightly knit, smaller scale. Yeah. Sort of so, so, I, so I think, I think a lot of the, a lot of those kind of people just, I think there's an implicit kind of barrier, and I'm not sure if that's institutional within within us or it's kind of self-imposed within within that group of kind of you know they don't you know they don't enter the field. I don't think mm-hmm. to the same degree, and so and so I think that's probably why as well. And so you you basically put together a whole group of people who you know who look at things in a particular way, and then. And then it can be very hard to see outside that sometimes. Yeah, and you know we've the, we've gone to universities and we've had that you know experience mm. of and this, uh, of kind of having to deal with uh, folks from very different backgrounds and yeah. to learn how to you know ingest perspectives from folks from many different backgrounds. Yeah. And to um, and and to us, I mean, in such an international field, you know, you have to deal with folks from all over. So like, uh, I, I like your point about how our sense of community ends up being pretty global already it's very different it's a very different <laughs> sense of community yeah I, I think that's the thing yeah our um, sense of community is like whoever's doing this sort of stuff anywhere <laughs> yeah yeah it's just a very it's just a very different way of looking at the world I think mm-hmm. and, I, and I think it's I think because the nature of the field is inherently kind of global it probably attracts more people who view community in that way yeah. rather than who view community quite locally because it, it, it would be difficult to keep that super local community mindset and yeah. to stay, you know, in, yeah. in the field because, um, well, you, you have to move around, <laughs> basically, you know, to stay in a lot of science jobs anyway. You have to move around. You have to go to, you know, be willing to move to different parts of your country or even yeah. different, different countries. And, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. And, I, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not in this conversation at all trying to slight, you know, slight conservatives on no, this. No. Like, it, like it's... Like I, I can see there are great, you know, I, you know, I, I grew up in a, you know, a small town in the north of England, you know, I can see, I see in the, in those, in those kind of communities that there is a really strong sense of, you know, people looking out for one another, mm-hmm. 
people's well-being uh, being really important you know you know and th- you know this goes down to people going to check on you know elderly people in their society in their yeah. society so so it's just a very different conception you know and i think and i think that is lost actually in in a lot of you know very liberal places like london and cambridge and and you know and, and many of these many of these you know big big cities um and i think it's i think it's a real shame um because i think you know a lot of the way in which those kind of you know a lot of the issues with the modern world come around you know come to things like loneliness and you know and and you know problems like that in society yeah. uh, and so and so i'm not saying at all that that we have a monopoly on you know what's what's right or what's good um but it's but it is just a very different way of looking at the world yeah absolutely and you can you know you can easily argue that they're both important and yeah. you want to find a balance between them and yeah and that it's actually nice that there are more conservative people and more liberal people because you need some mixture of that. Yeah, absolutely. Work, you yeah. know, I, I find, <laughs> you know, I actually really, you know, what I really enjoy is the kind of vibrancy of society. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this sounds, maybe it sounds a little cliche, I know, you know, and I don't, mm-hmm. you know, but, but, but I find it, I find it fascinating to engage with people who, I, I don't enjoy just like, talking to people who agree with me all the time that's, that's just so boring you know it's, it's like it's just it, petting each other on the yeah back I mean as long as you know I, I don't you know I don't I don't like you know I'm, I'm not gonna you know I don't want people who are you know clearly there's a there's a limit to what anyone will accept as, as a kind of you know as, as kind of acceptable opinions but I but I you know anyone who Anyone who holds a belief that isn't hateful and mm. is, and and is is sincerely held and and you know, rationalised in some way, I'm quite willing to give the time of day to. Like, yeah, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to disagree with you, and I, but I think this is a lot of the problem generally with society is that, you know, and this this feeds into the whole thing about social media and you know all these problems that we're having these days. It's just, you know, I think I think these kind of I think these kind of echo chambers are just so unhealthy. Yeah, it's such an unhealthy way in which. In which you know, I, I find public discourse, public debate of arguments, just so fascinating that that the idea of just like talking to people who agree all the time is just dull, really dull. Yes, <laughs> it is dull. Yeah, people get into the, these echo chambers and they form groups and pat each other on the back and they don't challenge each other and they don't question each other's worldview and they don't make each other think. Um, and it, I, I've tried a few times. I've I now think I've pretty much given up because I've just learned that. It's just not Facebook is not the place where this is going to happen. I just don't do politics you know? on Facebook. It's just it's no. just not. It, it just no. to me, it's just not a. It's just not a useful forum. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, certainly not for um, that kind of discussion. I like seeing where folks are and how they're doing and where they, you know, where they're living yeah. these days. And yeah. that's that's useful for that. But it's become really clear that as a discussion platform, it's mm-hmm. super limited and really um, flawed <laughs> in some ways, and easy to manipulate too. You can easily, you know, that's. You can feed fake information into it, and it gets shared around like crazy. It's interesting. Uh, I think. You know. I mean, I think. You know, I think if you're going to have kind of reasoned argument, you can either do it through rational face-to-face type discussion, or you effectively do it in long, in long kind of longhand prose. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't think you can do it in kind of tweets or in in short. You know. 20 character things generally very effectively that's right you know yeah. I think it reduces stuff basically to sound bites which which are which which inherently become kind of isolating to one group or the other yes that's um, right. so so I you know I'm you know 
there's great skill in in the kind of in the old journalism, you know, in the yeah, old absolutely. in the old opinion, the old long opinion piece. You know, mm-hmm. I have a lot of time for that. But if I'm going to engage in more active, you know, to and from to to go, I'd much rather speak to someone in person about it. So yeah. it's much more interesting. That's right. Yeah, I think if you try, because sometimes what will happen on Facebook, you know, if uh, and this happened to me uh, some in my kind of when I was learning mm. uh, how bad of a platform it is for this. <laughs> you know, you'd go, you type out a, a long something. You know, yeah. somebody makes the comment or you'd ask a question. Yeah. You type out a long thoughtful. Uh, something. Yeah. You try to you put like put some real time into it, and you research things, and then they come back and say something that makes it clear, like, oh, they didn't read any of that. They didn't yeah. actually look at it or engage with it in any real way. At all. They just saw, oh, it's from this person, and then they just react to it, and they don't really ingest what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I, and I think as well, it's, I think it, well, I think what it does as well is that it kind of it gives you a, it gives you kind of a place to hide behind as well a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Some of the comments you see on there, you would never say that to someone like face to face. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> would you? I mean, no. you know, you you no. just wouldn't because you'd be able to see the other person. You would see the other person's eye. Like you, you'd you'd have that like you know, that kind of emotional connection <laughs> with the person. Yeah, like you know, you wouldn't. You, you know, you people say things that are very hurtful. You wouldn't say that to someone like in reality. No. Oh yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> well, okay. Maybe some, some maybe someone would, but, but you know, maybe someone who's very emotionally mature would. Yeah. But you know, mature rational adults, they don't. Yeah, they don't slag people off like that just in rational, like day-to-day conversation. No. So why would you do it on Facebook? But it, but it allows you, but it gives you the ability to do that, I guess. Yeah, it's like the your kind of worst instincts and worst impulses. People feel free to just throw them out there. Yeah. <laughs> to just put them online. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no face-to-face emotional consequence for saying some of these things. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like like you're saying in face-to-face conversations, we've learned how to. Not just go with those first initial kind of angry in- impulses. We've yeah. learned how to channel those, and we've learned how to like temper those. You know, as, as you get older, you learn how to do that. And I think, and I think yeah, you, you you get adept at, at not kind of saying things in a way that just deliberately push people's angry buttons. Yeah, exactly. You know, for for no real reason. Mm-hmm. Like like you're not trying to. You know, and it, and it might you know, you might be something that you feel very strongly. You know, so that, you know, there, there are certain things that you know we all feel very strongly about. But but I always view it as, I always try and view it as a conversation. And, you know, I, and there are certain things that I would probably be very resistant to changing my opinions on. You know, I'm happy to accept that. But but you, but but, but I but I guess I view but I guess I view some of those things as. Well, it, well, if if I brought someone around a little bit to my way of thinking, then that would be like a good thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, on this, or at the very least, made them more empathetic to where you're seeing things yeah. from, even yeah. if they even if they don't really agree. Yeah, they to to have another human being go, oh, okay, that's not where I would go with that information, but I could see how one yeah. would go, you know, yeah. where you've gone with that yeah. information, and I I can respect that pathway that you've taken, and yeah. I can yeah, and and recognize that as legitimate and yeah. you know validate you in that way yeah i mean i had a discussion recently with someone about with a friend about this you know about you know and this was in the context of the whole kind of identity we're not really talking about science here but anyway, never mind. No, <laughs> open free free form podcast whatever we this is this is well this is certainly legitimate though science is not just the thing that happened in isolation right it's true we, we've it's got true. to connect it up with the rest of society it's true it's and true. to do that we've got to figure out how that thing works yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but, but I, I had a whole i had a whole um you know inter- really interesting discussion recently about um about language actually and about you know about 
this whole n- notion that's going on at the moment about identity politics, mm. um, which I find kind of fascinating in itself. Um, and we had a discussion about the you know about the phrase that, that's sort of going around at the moment a lot about check your privilege. Mm. You know that that there are certain groups in society who have kind of been privileged, um, and and I I'm actually kind of quite actually quite resistant to that to the use of that phrase or at least the use of that phrase in a way that's not properly qualified mm. because I, because what I worry about with that particular phrase is that it's basically a way of just shutting down the argument yeah. if it's just used as a stick it's not very helpful yes exactly yeah. so so I, I'm so I would I'm quite happy for people to say things like think about what you're saying and think about like where you're coming from when you say that and mm. do you have any actual experience of this mm. you know I think those are legitimate questions but if it's just used as a way of like I don't want to discuss this or you don't hold a rational you're, you, you're incapable of holding a rational opinion mm. on this which I think is I think is where oh. it can be pushed to mm. then I think it's a very negative thing I, and I really don't like that I could see that yeah I could see that I think I, and, and you know having read kind of different media you know, interpretations of this phrase, you, you kind of very much see how that can really push some people's buttons if you're not, if you're not very careful in how you use it. Yeah, there, there's, an, there's a, a really important point behind it, behind the idea of... There is. Yeah, privilege is, is a real thing, and you do need to think about your privilege sometimes. Yeah. But I hear what you're saying about how if we reduce that um, sophisticated idea down to just stop talking... Yeah, and that doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't. Not, it, not it, it it doesn't it help, and it won't help the person learn anything. Actually, no, it doesn't. Ha- it doesn't yeah. help them learn anything, yeah. uh, and it doesn't. You know, and ultimately, it doesn't. It doesn't engage with them. Mm-hmm. It's just basically a way of saying your opinion is not valid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I like that, and I like. The, well, I also like the the point that you brought up a minute ago about it, it being non hateful. You know, the, the whatever mm. that. You put that qualifier on a couple minutes ago, mm-hmm. about, you know, whatever kind of non-hateful opinion a person holds. Yeah, because um, there could there could be a limit to this, right? And sure, I think sure. we're, since we're seeing in the U.S. the luckily small scale, but we're seeing mm-hmm. the reemergence of mm-hmm. actual Nazis. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. being I'm not being hyperbolic, unfortunately. No, I, no, wish, I wish it, I was. It, yeah, it is very concerning. Yeah, but for those, there is a limit to all of these things, you know, to, to those folks uh, who have actual deeply racist, hateful violent beliefs I'm totally comfortable saying shut up your opinion's mm. not valid <laughs> we can have sticks for some things it's just yeah. clear like okay let's save our sticks for we, you need to you save know. your sticks for things that really need sticks yeah that's right for actual Nazis yeah <laughs> you, need, you need to save your, you need to because if you just use your stick for everything you, you, you're just not really talking to anyone yeah apart from the people who you perfectly agree with yeah yeah Which, right. who in reality are actually very few and far between yeah, no, that's right, and, and that's why I was glad to put the qualifier on there. Of the, this, it seems like the terrifying re- reemergence of Nazi type thinking is on a small scale in the U.S. It just gets a lot of attention because it's really scary. It does. Um, you know, it it and, does. Yeah. But still, the vast, vast majority of people, you know, conservative and liberal in the U.S. are are reasonable. <laughs> I, I would. Yeah, I would and it, but, but it, you know, and, it, and if people express an opinion which I view as maybe not hateful, but maybe a little. Maybe a little bigoted, you know. This, you know, because I think there are gradations of, of of kind of. I I would much rather ask them like, I think it's much more appropriate to ask them like, like why do you, why do you hold that opinion? Like, mm. like what's made you what's made you think that? Like, have you had some like really bad experience at some yeah. point that's that's like pushed you into that that kind of viewpoint? Mm. I think that's actually much more helpful than than just kind of shutting down the conversation. Mm-hmm. 
because if you just share that conversation, it then it then engenders that kind of well, no one understands us, victim mentality. You know, mar- effectively make mar- making martyrs of people. Yeah. Um, and you say clearly, there's a limit. So there's a, there's a point at which there's a point at which those people have to be dealt with within the health opinions that are so hateful they have to basically be dealt with by the law. But I, but I, but I think that we, you can. I think that with that, with those kind of conversations, you can stop more people drifting to that end of the spectrum. Mm. And, okay. and and that's yeah. And the, so, I, so I think it's kind of important to you know to kind of challenge and, and like say like you know, why do you, you know, why do you hold that like why do you hold that opinion like like so if somebody you, has a kind of racist opinion yeah, about like have you, you know, have you had some like personal experience that usually the answer will be like. Well, I mean, obviously, very the answer will be like no, but it but but it then kind of expose, but it then kind of like makes them question why they hold that opinion, mm. rather rather than rather than it just being like this is the opinion I hold, you know, and yeah. and I uh, that, that makes me think of I think I have a concrete example yeah. of this um, from a long time ago. It was when I was a kid in school, um, so another kid that I was in school with in southeast Georgia in the, you know, kind of rural area. So he told some uh, racist joke about people from, you know, a a European, an Eastern European country. Mm. And this was from like a 12-year-old, you know, kid in the Mm. middle of South Georgia. And it's kind of like, dude, you've never seen a person from this country. You've never been anywhere near that country. You know, you've never... And it's clearly it was just something that he had heard from his dad or, you know, an an adult around him. And it's like... And I think the sad reality is that often that kind of bigoted thought is just kind of taught is people we just people teach it to their kids and, and and then when you're a kid you don't know how the world works you don't know yeah. like you know your dad says something like that and you're like all right i guess that's how that is and yeah. you take it on board and um and then it becomes everybody else's responsibility to push back and say things like what do you what what do you have that idea where, where did you get that idea like yeah. i don't understand that doesn't come from anywhere real there's nothing you know you're just being uh, a bit racist there. <laughs> like yeah, it's, um, yeah, mm. yeah. You're just aping what's what you've been fed. Yeah, so I like that idea of pushing back against that. Yeah, um, that was a really good chat. I like that. We're, I'm not. We're not done. I just thought like no, no. It, 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 it went off on a bit of a random tangent, but it's I like but that. it's but it was kind of it was kind of fun. That was good. I think yeah. there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, that's yeah. Really, <laughs> um, valuable. Good stuff. Um, so you mentioned you grew up in a small town in Yorkshire. I did because um, yeah, and. Uh, what was the town name? Was uh, it's called Elland. So it's a little town yeah. between. So for the for those uh, people who know anything about England at all, it's a little former mill town that live that's between uh, two places called Halifax and Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. So this was kind of this area, I guess, was one of the kind of cradles of the Industrial Revolution. You know, in the yeah. early nineteenth century. So this was where you know wool and textiles were 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 kind of made. Um, unfortunately, obviously, that a lot of that industry has has kind of gone, and it, you know, and, mm. it, and you know, there's been kind of associated social problems with with that. Um, but it, it, I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful place as well. You know, the, the, the Yorkshire Hills are and the Yorkshire Moors. Anyone who ever gets a chance to go, it's is a is a really interesting interesting place to grow up. It has a, a kind of mm. a kind of solemn bleakness about it, which is which is very. Uh, Kind of inspiring, solemn, bl- inspiring, solemn That's bleakness. bleakness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, if, you, if you go out on those more, out on those kind of moors in the middle of, uh, in the middle of, you know, on a wet day in the middle of autumn or something, it's mm. just very, very, uh, yeah. It's it's just a, uh, yeah, a, a kind of very, yeah, 
interesting place, shall we say. I don't, I haven't, I've only been past there. I haven't mm-hmm. really been, I haven't mm-hmm. spent any time there. I'd like to spend some time there. But the, uh, the image that pops in my head when I think about Yorkshire is, um, so I listened, since I listened to a lot of podcasts, I yeah. listened to Patrick Stewart was on one. Oh, uh, yeah. He's okay, from, yeah. He's from Murfield, so um, he's a few miles away. A few miles away, yeah. pretty nearby. Yeah. And um, so he talked about this experience of how this is still one of his favorite things to eat is like uh, Granny Smith apple, like a sandwich with Granny Smith, Smith apples, apples and, okay. and cheddar and like okay, sh- yeah, cheddar. Yeah. yeah. Is that a thing? Is that yeah. Like so that, well, the other thing like is a, a, the other thing that's pretty common is um, is like. Uh, it is a thing, and the other, <laughs> the other thing that's pretty common, but like that combination of fruit and cheese seems to be like a mm. so so like a, a like, like fruit cake, Christmas cake, yeah, with with like cheese. It's like a, it's oh, like a thing. Fruit yeah. cake with cheese. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's, it's great. It's sure. great. Like a really nice. Nothing better than like a piece of fruit cake with a slab, big slab of Wensdale next to it. You know, nice. It's really it's really good. <laughs> and uh, he was describing also this. Um, this idea that it was pretty culturally different uh, back when he was growing up you mm. know, around, around World War Two that um, the, the the accent was super thick and even the f- phrases people used and some of the like it was not a different language exactly but it was different enough that you know somebody who'd grown up only in the south would would yeah it wouldn't be automatically ingestible to them they'd have to take some time and like what, what do you mean by that like what are you saying i think that's right i mean um, some of your podcast listeners will probably give howls of protest like he's not from yorkshire you know but i, I mean I, I will qualify this and say like i've spent most of my life not in yorkshire so yeah, you know yeah, I, yeah. I grew up there but i i've spent basically every you know since 17 i've basically not really lived there i imagine it's not as distinct Sorry, as it was back as back when patrick stewart was no you no, yes, that's probably right been a lot more homogenized <laughs> since then yeah but, yeah yeah um, yeah but it does have his own culture a bit right but it's very very much about. so very 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 proudly so mm-hmm. um you know it, it is a it's a very it's an exceptionally diverse county kind of both both um demographically but also but also sort of geographically as well mm. so you know you've got you've got the big cities you've got you know Leeds and Bradford and Sheffield um which are and, and Hull which are all very um you know which have you know a lot of that kind of Vic, I guess still kind of Victorian northern kind of civic pride that 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 was instilled in those in those kind of early early parts of the industrial revolution, mm. um, and but then it's surrounded by you know hills, um, dales, uh, the coast, of course, mm-hmm. uh, North York Moors, mm. um, and you know and also you know a lot of kind of flatter farming farming areas as well. Mm. Um, so you know there's a lot of it. You know it's been very industrial in a lot of parts of it, and there's also some parts of it that are very rural. Mm. Um, so it's a really kind of diverse county in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that sounds so, good. So it's, uh, and that's where you went to school, and you that's where I went to school. Yeah, so I didn't really go to school anywhere near the sea, which is mm. which is interesting. I, yeah. I, you know, I was probably in about the most landlocked part of Yorkshire that there was. Um, <laughs> so you know, I was mm. a good, a good sort of thirty or forty. I mean, I guess nowhere in Britain's that far from the coast, is mm. it? I mean, they say that there's nowhere in Britain that's more than seventy-two miles from the sea. I think is there. Oh yeah, the, I can um, believe some, that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. and um, a long coastline, depending on how you measure it and which fractal yeah which fractal browser yeah, how, yeah. How, what, 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 <laughs> over what over what length scale are you doing your doing your measuring but yeah. it is a, it is a long coastline for i guess it's a long coastline for the area of the for the area of the country yeah and then your undergrad was went to oxford yeah i went to oxford i originally read geography actually and mm-hmm. you know i think that that was that was really great actually it was really um i had a great time it was a it was a really interesting 
kind of group of, of both physical and social scientists. Um, That's not what geography is here, right? It's the it is. Of, it is. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I clearly have a, you know, I clearly have a stronger aptitude for the for the physical uh, sort of physical science side of it. Um, but it gave me a real. I think it gave me a real understanding of like the importance of of kind of understanding kind of um, spatial relationships between things, mm. actually, um, and, and the importance that spatial relationships has both in the human sphere but also in the physical sphere. Um, in terms of, you know, where you know where things are and where that, where that matters and why that matters. Um, you mean like where mountains are relative to where people might want to live and all, all, all those know. all those kind of things. Yeah, because mm. um, that affects the rainfall patterns. And absolutely. Kind of yeah. Mm. So you know, it, it really is that kind of interface between the the physical and the human world, which is which is kind of fascinating. But I, I guess I kind of realised that I, you know, I, I did have more of an aptitude for for doing the. Um, for doing the kind of more physical science side of uh, side of geography, and so I ended up moving to Reading and doing a, a, meteor, a meteorology masters actually. Um, yeah. So, we, it was, so that was led by kind of you said your aptitude. You kind of realised oh I seem to be able to latch on to the physics stuff a bit better. Yeah. And then, yeah. But something pulled you specifically in the meteorology. Yeah. I, I guess I was pulled by. I mean, I guess I was initially pulled by the fact that I was just kind of I was just kind of fascinated with with the climate system, and I, I and I. You know, for for a while, I kind of entertained the idea of going off and doing, you know, actually becoming an active kind of meteorological forecaster mm-hmm. and doing and doing kind of active operational oh, for, yeah. forecasting. Um, it's not too late. You could. Well, I still could, I guess. <laughs> could I late. still could. I mean, I have a, I do have a master's in meteorology now. I'd, pro- I'd probably have to relearn a lot of it at this, at this stage. But we can go into uh, operational oceanography and forecast. Well, that's true. Yeah, I can do operational oceanography <laughs> forecast. Like, yeah. Um, but but then while I was there, I I did a. I did a dissertation um, in oceanography uh, with um, a couple of really fascinating people, uh, both of whom are now based in Oxford. So Helen Johnson, David Marshall, yeah, um, who are, who are both Oxford-based now, now Oxford-based physical mm-hmm. oceanographers. And I guess it was them that kind of inspired my my love of kind of the oceans, and you know, and the kind of realization that a lot of the physics that apply in the atmosphere are equally applicable in the ocean, um, just on different time scales and different yeah. space scales. Yeah, the ocean um, has weather. It's just small and slow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, relative um, to the atmosphere. And I, and I think I think the realisation as well that it was a kind of part of the ocean that was... Sorry, a kind of part of the climate system that was really poorly understood mm-hmm. kind of fascinated me. I mean, it, this was around the time... You know, this was just after, I guess in oceanographic terms, this was just after... You know, it was around the time the Argo Float program was being set up. Yeah. In the, you know, in, in that, uh, was it was around the time I was doing my kind of masters and, and PhD work. Yeah, and these are the autonomous floats that you know you put them out in the ocean and you don't have to really do much else, and they collect uh, measurements of the whole structure of the you know ocean temperature and salinity for you, and then they beam them back by satellite to data centers, and so that had just started, right? So that, it, that, it, just, that it, I mean, it, 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 yeah, that was just it was, I mean, the ocean was just being seeded basically with those with those Argo flakes around that time, you know. So the the initial array was being built up, hmm. um, you know, and reached maturity, you know, just after I started, um, and so. I, you know, I was kind of, I was just kind of fascinated by the idea that there was a whole part of the climate system that that had been so, you know, you, you know, sure there'd been some great work done, but it was still so poorly undersampled, mm. you know, and and poorly observed, you know, and and that that float program, uh, you know, and other research efforts, you know, it's not it's not just that, but it, it's a, it is a good example, um, has kind of transformed uh, our um, our level of understanding about about. You know the role of the ocean in terms of taking up heat from the atmosphere and 
and, and the role of the ocean in terms of you know an ocean circulation and variability within the ocean. Um, and I just I just found the idea of moving into a field that was very much developing like that just a really kind of fascinating yeah um, the doors are just opening prospect you know, it's just yeah. starting yeah yeah I guess part of that why that didn't or why the ocean had been so undersampled was you can't just do it with a satellite you know you can get the surface stuff with a satellite but the satellite can't tell you about the ocean interior you've got to send a ship or a float yeah. or something out there yeah. to actually measure the you know hidden interior. That, um, that's right, and the and the and the you know the float program that we mentioned kind of opened up the top two thousand meters of the ocean mm. to to regular climate monitoring, effectively yeah, that, right. that hadn't previously happened. I mean, of course, we're still of course we're still in a situation where we have a dearth of, of measurements in the abyss of the ocean, in the deep abyss mm. of the ocean. Um, so. You know, if you're if you're wanting to understand the densest parts of the ocean, the bits that sit below two thousand meters, you know that that sit. You know, m- most of the ocean is basically you know these big abyssal plains that are mm. four or five thousand meters deep. Um, the lower parts of those are still really poorly sampled. Yeah, um, that's true. There's deep Argo coming online. There's now. deep Argo coming online, and but it probably won't reach the same level of coverage. I'm guessing that the regular Argo. That's you know. probably. I mean, that's probably true. Um, and we, you know, we're still a few years away from having that as a kind of operational, you know, operational type type yeah. tool. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's really that's really interesting that that those those kind of places are still so poorly sampled because those are the places that you know, are some of the places where you expect you know signals from the atmosphere to be propagating mm. so you you know you expect dense waters at northern and southern high latitudes to be you know to be going in. we know we know that those go into the deepest parts of the ocean and they yeah. fill up the abyss of the you know the bottom of the abyss of the ocean that's where they form and sink exactly um and so you know measurements of those things are are still quite sparse um there are various choke points in the ocean that are instrumented um to to measure those things so you know you've got things like the, the rapid mooring array in the North Atlantic or, or at Bass we have our only passage moorings which yep. monitor the outflow of bottom waters uh, from the coming from the Antarctic mm-hmm. but but you know regular repeated measurements of those things are, are, of properties of the deep ocean are still are, are still to some degree um, quite sparse yeah that's true and um, so and then after reading so mm. you did your PhD at Southampton? Yeah, so so I worked on trying to. I actually worked with with a lot of the Argo data to look at um, understanding kind of short time scale variability um, in the uh, subtropical North Atlantic circulation. Um, so I guess this was around the time that the uh, Rapid Array was being set up in the North Atlantic. So this is an array that basically monitors the the uh, state of the overturning in the North Atlantic. The the, the system of vertically integrated currents, effectively mm-hmm. that that drives heat transport within the ocean. Yeah. And so I, I was... There's a lot of the work of that north-south transport of... That's right. Getting, transporting heat from the tropics to the higher High latitudes, latitudes, you know. Exactly. Um, and, and the return flow, of course, of dense water uh, back southwards yeah. again. And so I was... And so I, I was kind of using um, Argo flow data to see what what could be... Um, what could be extracted about the shorter timescale variability, of particularly the, the big gyre circulation in the, in the North Atlantic to... Um, to uh, yeah, get a greater understanding of the kind of high frequency variability in the circulation. Yeah, what did you find out? Yeah, so uh, we found out that basically it's really, really variable on pretty short <laughs> timescales, um, which is you know, we, which is you know, in line with a lot of other findings about yeah. about these these big kind of ocean circulations that that you know, if you go back and measure it once every 
you know, ten years, which we often do with these big hydrographic yeah. sections, you horribly alias yeah. a lot of a lot of you yeah. know, a lot of variability. So it's um so yeah, I, I found that a completely fascinating uh, kind of thing to do. But I, I also at the same time I I got a particular yeah, I, you know, I, I love kind of subtropical oceanography, but I got a particular kind of passion for for, for high latitude stuff around mm. that time, so and mm. it, it, I guess it kind of set. I guess it kind of started when I went to, I went to um, Woodsole Oceanographic Institution in the US uh, on a kind of exchange scheme, and I um, I worked with uh, I worked with Bob Picard out there, who was um, who's a high latitude or Greenland kind of well Arctic I should say, um, high latitude oceanographer, physical oceanographer, um, and. The, the kind of I, I guess my my passion for for kind of high latitude oceanography kind of started started there mm. um, you know the, the, the kind of ideas of uh, you know of, of kind of dense waters forming in those northern high latitudes and spilling into the deep ocean and what and what effect you know and understand the dynamics of those processes really kind of yeah. kind of started at that point yeah that's right yeah both in the you know around Antarctica and in the North Atlantic, yeah. yeah, you get a lot of heat loss to the atmosphere. You know, it's cold up there, yeah. so the ocean loses a lot of heat, and that makes the water denser, and it tends to sink down to the very bottom of the ocean. Um, and then it's got to get back up somehow. You know, some of the for volume conservation you know, yeah. reasons it yeah. has to get back up, and that makes you. Th- I was just thinking about this this morning um, about how you know the, there's the, that classical kind of uh, picture in oceanography from the 50s and 60s I think you know Walter Monk had this idea of well you form deep water at high latitudes like you're talking about and then everywhere else it kind of you know, this uh, the, it, in the tropics anyway there's heat from above that kind of mm. comes down and mixes that uh, it warms the, the colder water mm. uh, up and you get some vertical advection associated with that so yeah. you basically get this slow upwelling everywhere in the ocean or at least averaged over the entire ocean uh, that is the um, uh, to, to kind of close, you know, people call it closing the mass budget, which basically is a fancy way of saying, oh, well, your you know, water is going down and we need it to come back up. <laughs> How yeah. is it going to come back up? Yeah. And um, it's been fun to watch this because this has started really kicking off even since I joined the field and, and uh, you, you as well. Mm. This uh, hypothesis that, oh, well, a lot, a lot of that upwelling is happening in these really narrow areas, uh, you know, narrow continental slopes and the narrow bathymetry yeah. uh, that is happening these these kind of small currents yeah. uh, small relative to the kind of global scale anyway and there seems to be more and more evidence for that kind of accumulating that something about the way that turbulence and mixing works uh, basically the fact that it, turbulence seems to get stronger with depth so yeah. if you're down in the deep ocean the turbulence yeah. is stronger there that that helps to drive this process of that upwelling that upward mixing occurring in tiny boundary currents and so I don't know did, so you've been watching that too I think you've probably had more direct kind of research contact with some of those ideas than I have yeah very very much so and I mean you know and the other the other big thing as well in the in that field was you know yes geographically you know around you know ridges and topography but particularly geographically as well the, the kind of realization that this wasn't a a kind of worldwide process, but it was that, that actually a lot of these processes are concentrated in the Southern Ocean. Mm. Um, so, you know that that kind of that kind of realization kind of led me into a, a you know postdoctoral work that that really looked at trying to understand those kind of mixing and turbulent processes within the Southern Ocean. Mm. Um, so, 
you know, this was around the time where we were really thinking about um, how those dense waters got got back up to the surface, and it was it was kind of hypothesised and had been shown in a few, you know, in in some studies prior to to this, but I guess not quantified in as rigorous a sense as 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 the projects I was involved in. So I was involved in a big international project called um, called Dimes, mm-hmm. um, which actually stands for the um, Diapycnal and Isopycnal Mixing Experiment in the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we do like our acronyms as scientists. But, um, They're but, mandatory now. You have to. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I know. I it's, consider them mandatory. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really, that was, that was a big observational program that was... Uh, and, and modeling program as well, but it you know it, it had at its kind of core um, a a tracer experiment that that was where effectively what you do is you uh, introduce a a synthetic um, synthetic tracer into the ocean and in, an inert chemical effectively at a particular density layer of the ocean, mm-hmm. and then monitor how that spreads vertically as the as it as it as it moves yeah vertically and, and horizontally and horizontally yeah yeah that, that, that's right it was deliberately you know purposely put at a, specific, at a very specific you know, density level, level. Yeah. yeah like three decimal places I think yeah right? that's right yeah jeez <laughs> <laughs> like, and uh, then uh, every uh, few years or no sorry not every few years but every every, but every month yeah every month know, every, every, sorry every year or so every yeah. year or so yeah there, there would be a research cruise that would try to detect okay where has that actually got, gone, actually gone to and what can we learn about mixing from yeah. where that tracer has so there's a, there's a, there's a, there were a couple of complementary techniques actually within within dimes so so the, the the tracer experiment was one really key component of it mm-hmm. and what that does is it gives you a really good sense of the kind of vertically and uh, and time integrated sorry so the sort of spatially and time integrated mixing that's happened it gives you a really good estimate of the mean value effectively of of, of mixing that's happening but of course, alongside that, what you want to do is try and understand the processes that are actually driving that. Mm-hmm. So you know, you already alluded to the fact that you know, that you know, rough topography is really important. And one of the big processes we think that was important in the Southern Ocean as well was, you know, the, the Southern Ocean is is unique in that it's the only place in the world ocean where currents can go circumpolarly mm-hmm. all the way around. Yeah. You know, um, and so you get this huge um, Antarctic circumpolar current. You know, which is the largest volume by volume current mm-hmm. in the world ocean. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what what we what we hypothesised was happening was that this really really strong current was basically interacting with these this rough topography effectively on the bottom, um, and and that was basically shedding waves from um, from uh, from these you know this this rough topography and that, those waves were then breaking and as waves break of course they're mixing water from different um the, those they're, they're mixing water of different densities mm-hmm. so just in the same way that you've got surface you know surface waves on the surface of the ocean you can get internal waves in the ocean yeah. so between different density layers of the ocean yeah that waves can break not just at the surface but they can break, break internally yeah, yeah internally as well yeah um and so i was involved in <coughs> excuse me I was involved in a couple of different you know, components of that dimes experiment to um, to kind of quantify that to quantify that directly mm-hmm. um, and to so to take basically spot measurements of mixing that were happening at, at, at different times um, and also involved in some moorings as well that, and those moorings were, were out for a long period of time and really those moorings were there to try and understand some of those some of those kind of energy conversion processes that happen mm-hmm. between the uh, the mean flows 
and the eddies and the internal waves within the ocean and to look at the cascades of energy that happen within yeah. the ocean that drive those kind of mixing processes. And a mooring is something you've got a big heavy weight and you drop it to the bottom of the ocean yeah. and it's, you know, it's got a long chain of instruments that kind of float above you know, the, the weight and you've basically got a lot of instruments that are weighed down. You, know, you put a, basically an anchor on them and they uh, stay in the ocean and kind of take these continuous measurements of uh, velocity and whatever other interesting. So yeah, typically, typically we're doing on, yeah. temperature, salinity, and velocity. Typically, mm. was what, yeah. we, were, what yeah. we were measuring. Um, and yeah, so, and so, time series of, a, yeah. a, big, a big time series of those, and, that, and that's really important because we know that a lot of these, you know, mixing and turbulent processes in the ocean don't happen. You know, don't happen. Um, you know, kind of constantly at all times. They're very episodic. Um, the mixing at any particular location. You know, in time, can vary by three, four, even five orders of magnitude. I mean, it's, you know, it's huge. Yeah. Um, and so, getting reliable statistics hmm. when you've got a process that's so variable. If you go and sample that once, you can imagine how difficult it is to get a get a mean number. Um, yeah, that's right. You could come to the totally wrong conclusion. Absolutely. You know, to to use your word aliasing from earlier, you know, you yeah. could just measure it at the wrong time. Yeah. And get well, there's no mixing happening here. But yeah. Maybe you just needed to wait a month and then. <laughs> Absolutely, right or a day. Or know, a day, yeah. 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 You know, so, so you know, th- those kind of big integrated experiments, you know, like we were, that we were doing, um, that draw on expertise. You know, in that in that case, it was mainly from the UK and the US, but draw on expertise of lots of different research groups are really important for kind of tackling those kind of big, mm-hmm. those kind of really big, big questions. I mean, it was really interesting, actually. You, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what we found, um, in, you know, in terms of things like Lee wave shedding from topography in the ocean, of course, have been known in the atmospheric community for, hmm. for, for fifty years. Yeah. Um, but it was unclear, I think, whether you know how much those processes actually applied in the ocean, That's right. where they applied, yeah. and and what the driving forces were behind them, whether they were driven by big mean flows or whether they were being driven by internal tides. Yeah. Um, and until you go out there and measure them, all you can say is that's plausible. Yeah, yeah it seems likely ex- that you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so I guess that's how I kind of got into that into that field. And and you know, and I think using that kind of kind of cutting edge technology to to look at kind of turbulent processes then drove me into thinking more about the use of kind of underwater robotics you know generally in tackling problems around circulation and turbulence and kind of bridging that gap between you know that we talked about earlier about you know how do you how do you bring your your number of observations up to a level where it can you can start saying really useful things about how the ocean's varying yeah. and so i guess that's how i ended up ultimately you know i was i was part of that project and got into a conversation with um, with mike meredith here um, and it was just at around that time that he'd uh, that bass were acquiring underwater gliders. So these are these are these are not these are kind of similar to the Argo floats that we talked about earlier. But the but the you know so similar in size and scale. But the key difference is that you can actually pilot them, so you can actually move them where you want them. So whereas the Argo floats are kind of just free drifting, um, the gliders um, will you know sink to a thousand meters and then and then. Um, Come back to the surface, but you can actually say, "I want you to go to this latitude and longitude location." Yeah. Okay. So they 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 they're able to tr- they're able through the through a, a buoyancy engine and be able to move weight around inside them. They're effectively able to um, make a 
a component, the, the vertical component of, of motion, they were to translate that into a horizontal component, which allowed you to move them in a very low-powered kind of way. This up-and-down seesaw kind of, you know, the, the sawtooth kind of pattern. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. Um, and so I was kind of just really fascinated to, to move that, you know, the focus of that research from kind of turbulent processes in the Southern Ocean, uh, in, the, in the open Southern Ocean, to, to kind of more shelf-like processes around, you know, particularly around the West Antarctic. One of the big questions at the moment is, you know, that's uh, is the degree to which the West Antarctic melting, particularly the West Antarctic of of the big um, of the big um, ice shelves there, um, are is being driven by by the ocean compared to the atmosphere. Hmm. Um, you know, and there's a lot of evidence kind of mounting up that that those floating ice shelves that that effectively drain big glaciers behind them on on the land. Um, that those are being basically attacked from below by the ocean. Um, so this, yeah. So so I I guess through that contact I made with Dimes, it, it, you know, it's kind of interesting how these things work out. But I, I ended up I ended up at Bath and I ended up ended up working up here, on yeah. working on gliders. Yeah, because I was going to say that it's not obvious yet. You know, how does heat get from lower latitude? It's like to the open Southern Ocean, actually up to the glacier. You know, because it seems to be doing it. It seems to be melting it. Yeah. And we can sort of map it out and see, oh, yeah, it is there. Like, the warmer water is getting up to the shelf. Yeah. But we don't know. And it looks like it's probably going to be a pretty complex, you know, spatially complex and temporally kind of complex pattern of mixing. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ocean, since it's a big turbulent fluid, has a lot of different patterns of, of mixing, a lot of different pa- ways in which it transports properties from... Uh, from out of the open ocean to up near the glaciers and so what you're trying to do I think is to get a better handle on some of those patterns and some of the tendencies of you know, yeah. the, the, the nonlinearities to mix heat uh, poleward to get it up onto the glacier uh, and to, to, where it, to where it's doing its mixing work and then you know ultimately I guess to be able to improve our understanding uh, to see, okay, is that going to keep happening, or uh, you know, are the glaciers in danger of you know, getting in contact with a whole bunch of extra warm water and, and mm-hmm. then melting faster than they are now, which would be bad for sea level rise and uh, bad for um, you know, just kind of general climate change as well. Um, so yeah, I would imagine that's the kind of big you know picture in which your your work fits anyway. But on the other hand, you don't necessarily have to think about that particular big picture every day. You know, on a given day to day, you might yeah. be dealing with something very specific about where your glider is and how to That's make, right. make it go where you want it to go. That's right. And I mean, the really nice thing about that, using those as a platform, is that we, you know, we've got knowledge that a lot of these processes are, are probably kind of turbulent processes. So a lot of them are happening on fairly small scales. So as you move from the, you know, the ocean, as you move from the equator to the poles, the, the size of your eddies, the size of your spinning vortices in the, you know, dominant spinning vortices in the ocean get, get smaller. Yeah, the, the weather, as we've been colloquially yeah, the, the, the ocean weather the gets... The oceanic weather gets, gets smaller. Gets smaller. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, on, on the shells around Antarctica, it's, you know, those eddies are typically, you know, a few kilometres in scale. Mm. And they, they're, not, they're not big 100, 200, 300 kilometre eddies like in the, yeah. in the open ocean. Um, and so being able to observe them with traditional ships is actually really hard mm. because 
you know, you're going to have to be doing CCD stations every couple of kilometers or so to, in order to go to sample them. Well, that's expensive. It's time-consuming, um, and you know, and the ocean field evolves pretty quickly. You know, the ocean weather field evolves pretty quickly. So yeah. the really nice thing about yeah. gliders, of yeah, course, is that just go away. They is that they can go away and sample those, and you get that really kind of high-resolution data mm-hmm. um, because of the way that because they don't move very fast relative to the to, to the field, mm-hmm. um, and so they, you know, you you get a much you can sample those kind of eddy processes much better than you can than you can with um, with kind of traditional ship-based measurements, which is you know a real asset to that kind of technology. So it's it's allow. So I think it's not just it's not just that these kind of you know new exciting autonomous platforms are allowing us to do things that we did before you know in a more cost-effective way or or a cheaper. It's actually allowing us to ask different scientific questions as well. Like it is feasible to go and like look at individual eddies with with these you know with these kind of you know with these these kind of platforms, um, mm. and and I think that's what I find kind of fascinating about about you know these underwater you know autonomous underwater vehicles um, is the ability to be able to do just different and cool and different yeah. science with them. Do you think you'll be able to test aspects of this? I'm not. Mm. of this idea about the uh, upwelling being concentrated along continental slopes. I know that's not necessarily part of what you're looking mm. at, but could you kind of in principle use you know, your gliders to address that or do you need some, a different set of techniques to address this hypothesis of oh, the ocean upwelling, it's happening in these you know, currents connected to the... I mean, there are certainly ways of getting vertical velocities out of gliders. Um, I, I think the, you know, the issues always come with you know, you're you're averaging over a very noisy time series. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, right. so I, yeah, it's not in, it's not, you know, it's not impossible certainly. Um, but I think, you know, I think in reality you, you probably need an array of different platforms to, yeah. be able to get a. Is a deep dive sort of thing feasible? I've heard some some kind of half ideas floating around about doing a deep version of dimes. Well, to, so to, put a, to put a tracer to put a tracer in the in the in the. Very deep ocean. I guess or? it would have to be right. Yeah. If you're okay. trying to test that idea of oh well, the upwelling is happening in yeah along these uh, along the bathymetry kind yeah of up up the bathymetry to sh- from deeper to shallower bathymetry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the you know I think you know a key place where you could do that would be you know a lot of along a lot of your mid ocean ridges would be a really mm. good place to test those kind of hypotheses where you've got internal tidal driven mixing. Um, mm. You know, basically. You know, it seems that those kind of spreading ridges are one of the really important places for for those kind of those kind of upwelling processes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you you could envisage doing something where you had a a kind of combination of 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 tracer and microstructure experiments mm. uh, along those in those kind of regions. Yeah. So yeah, I mean. That would be that would be a very cool thing to do. I like your point about you need to pick carefully to try to get a place where you think the signal is going to be bigger than the the noise. Yeah, the signal you're trying to measure needs to be bigger than the kind of background variations that are yeah. just happening there. That's right. And that's maybe not obvious a priori, you know, before you you do it. No, this is there is this is there is a thing that mean you know, and I mean, whenever we try and plan these kind of field experiments, we of course use the best available modeling that we have. Yeah. To try and sample in a way that we think is optimal but of course the models are only as good as the physics that you're putting into them um, and so there's always yeah. an element of there's always an element of of surprise that you can certainly have uh, and that's part of the joy you know that's part of the joy of science and yeah and they're not and models aren't always brilliant at those like you're right next to a boundary like you're right at the yeah. At, yeah. at the interface between the ocean and the 
you know, the solid earth, <laughs> the yeah. ridge beneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Know, like it, it can do okay, but sometimes some of those mixing aspects are parameterized or represented in a simplified way. Yeah. And because it, you know, most models really can't resolve all of the spatial and temporal scales that you would need to explicitly yeah. represent just with like a straight up Navier Stokes style. You know, yeah, let's, yeah. let's solve every grid point at every yes, absolutely. Yeah. They, just they just don't have the relevant. You know, they don't have all of those spatial scales that you would need to fully describe all the turbulent processes going there. So no. it would be difficult to use them to tell you exactly where to put the deep dimes, sort of thing. I, it, I would yeah, think, you know. it, it would. It would. Yeah. So. so. So when, just put it everywhere and just like yeah yeah <laughs> just yeah everywhere we do and see what happens yeah we do we do what we can um, we do what we can but then uh, that runs into the problem of if you do too many of these transient tracer experiments then the ocean actually gets noisy with them like yeah you fill it with you fill it with so, so yeah I mean Andy Watson who's a key um, he's a you know, he's a key person for for these experiments did, did a lot of um, experiments with um, sulfur hexafluoride so SF six mm -hmm. back in the uh, early 1990s uh, um, and um, there are kind of issues with that both from a, the fact that there is a source of that now and there's a source of that in the atmosphere as well um, so you, you worry about contamination um, because you're, you're trying to detect minute quantities of a lot of these mm -hmm. things you know, you know you're, you're trying to detect I think for the dime tracer the, the, the detection I'm, I'm, I may be wrong so you know people should feel free to howl out on, on the, in the comments if this is wrong but I think when I spoke to the scientists, one of the key scientists who was involved with that, they were the lower detection limit was was of, of this in the in the equipment they were using was uh, one milligram in one cubic kilometer of seawater. So, <laughs> one cubic kilometer, <laughs> milligram. That's amazing. <laughs> That's mind blowing. I can't. Uh, yeah, one cubic kilometer. So yeah. the, I was just picturing you know from this office to like that'll get you to the. The, the punter, I think, yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's that kind of size, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a matter of putting one milligram of a little, so that you know that's like a, you know, a, you know, a, a, an almost microscopic amount in yeah. a in a in a kilometer of seawater. So to go to Cambridge and find a very specific couple grains of sand, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like within town somewhere, yeah. yeah, and you can somehow detect that, yeah, um, I guess the it difference dissolves, it dissolves in the water, I guess, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It dissolves. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of amazes me that people are able to do that sort of thing. I was just listening to another podcast, and they were talking about on the same kind of scale uh, the LIGO. This is totally different, mm. you know, scientific field. But they were talking about the detecting gravity waves using ah, yeah, these okay. inter interferometers. Yeah, and they were saying that you know gravitational radiation passes by the Earth because a couple of neutron stars collide, and that physically changes the distance between the lasers and yeah. the, the, the. And they said that some of those distances were you know. Uh, just the space of a few protons and yet their interferometer is so sensitive that it can detect variations that are that tiny and when they're doing the calculations they have to take into account that the, the light has pressure you know the light exerts pressure on the mirror mm. and will be mo and will move the mirror around a little bit so they mm. call it like the shot noise from yeah. photons hitting the mirror yeah, yeah. The, so yeah it amazes me when people can devise ways to detect things in just these tiny tiny little um, amounts that are so it's, sensitive yeah it's, it's, it's really remarkable I mean the, the, those kind of analytical techniques are just so remarkable in terms of what they can in terms of what you can do these days I mean it's you know it's, yeah it, it it's something that just wasn't achievable even 20 years ago. Yeah. So. Do you want to um, finish with a couple quick quick questions? Ooh, is that, is that okay. Right? Is I mean, it... Just your kind of reactions to it. You know, okay. It okay. Be, well, we'll see, shall you know, we? We'll see what yeah. they are. It depends what they are. Or it can be a long reaction. If okay. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Okay. Um, so uh, the 
how do you feel about writing? Is a question I like to ask folks. Do you do you enjoy it, or is it kind of? I do. I do. Or, I do enjoy yeah. writing. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I I find it one of those things that really helps clarify my thoughts, mm-hmm. um, and I find it really helpful to show where I still need to understand things. Yeah. Um, in the process of writing it out, yeah. you can kind of go, oh. I hadn't actually thought about that too much. I kind of it's like a hole in your knowledge, and it's yeah. So you know, you know, it might be that I draft a paper early and with a whole section missing, um, but it becomes really clear what that what that section needs to be about. Yeah, that's right. And then you uh, you hope that you don't have the realization that like, oh yeah, I should have done all this analysis differently. (laughs) Actually, which can happen. You can go to write your paper, write that missing section, and you can have that moment of you can you can. Oh, this yeah. is all wrong. Yeah. Okay. Let's start I, yeah. over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have to get very used to that, like, iterative starting over or kind of process of redoing all your analysis over and over. Yeah, again. that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you but you enjoy it overall. You see, you know, that, yeah, I pretty, yeah, yeah. I, writing, I think writing something that comes fairly naturally to me, actually. So That's helpful. Know. Yeah. 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 I've, um, yeah, so how about writing grant proposals, though? Because that can be a totally different, <laughs> totally different monster, right? That's a totally it can. different can. It can. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it can be trying. It can be very trying, particularly when you know that, particularly when you know that the chances of being funded are not mm. huge for a lot of things. Yeah, I'm grappling with that right now because I need to write a proposal. Mm. And I feel good about the idea. Like, I like the idea, and I think... It would be really neat to do it, and I'm excited about it. But I'm having to psychologically like r- prepare myself for spending, you know, a lot of time, you know, many weeks on on something that probably isn't going to go anywhere. At least not this round. You know, maybe I'll need to try again another round or two. And you, know, you, you need a, a healthy mindset, a healthy distance from it. And even while you're working hard on the thing, you have to have a healthy distance from it to engage with it properly. I mean, my feeling about writing grammar puzzles is that I think. That the the process of writing them is helpful um, in terms of clarifying your ideas, mm-hmm. and in terms of making your science the best it can be, making your ideas the best it can be. So I think at the kind of level at which the competition is, you know, maybe a third of them get funded, mm-hmm. it's a really helpful process. Mm-hmm. I think increasing the increasing the situation we face is that like less than a tenth of them are getting funded, and then really amongst that like. You know, thirty percent that I said should be funded. It's then just a lottery, really, about what gets funded. Yeah, really. yeah, and and that's very frustrating. That's very frustrating. I heard the idea that that might actually be more fair that you identify like the the top third of grant proposals and, and then just, just and then like just pick them up. Got randomly fund yeah. <laughs> ten ten percent. I think it. Yeah, I think in some ways it might be actually because I, because I think you can be very susceptible to, you know reviewers particularly written the way reviewers of particular reviewers have written reviews mm, yeah it can be very it can be very yes so some people express themselves in ways that are more or less um forthright shall we say yes uh, and so it might be that the actual content of the review is actually very is actually not much different to yeah. another proposal but it might be that the way they've expressed it is actually the thing that switches it from yeah. fundable to not fundable. That's right. Like, where, what's that person's kind of cultural background? Are mm. they more, are they more likely to write a review that's like, 
well, this all looks pretty great. Have you thought about trying, you know, yeah. these couple of things versus somebody who maybe is essentially saying the same, the same thing, thing, but the way they express it is, well, I don't know. There's a couple, couple big, big things you really need to think about here. Yeah, you know? yeah. and they're in fact with the same content, but they're, but they're actually but because they're just expressed in a different way. That I mean, that yeah. can be the difference between something being funded and not funded. And you could also be subject to. Um, Maybe your proposal was read last, and maybe people are exhausted. And yeah. Maybe yeah. the person whose job it was to summarize the proposal, your proposal, and put it forward is kind of like I'm so tired. Yeah, I don't know about this one. So you know whether your proposal was put forward earlier in the in the review process or later, um, then that could, that could make a difference. And um, so that would be having a random selection would be a way to guard against some of those. I'm not necessarily advocating for it. I'm just seeing. No, I, I don't think it's. A, I don't think. I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to have to pick a number of proposals that are fundable, mm-hmm. which is wider than the actual amount of funding that there is, and then for the last few go through a. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad system. Actually, mm. yeah. You know, in a, in a in a system of low resources. The. Um... Other kind of quick questions that, yeah. I, that I like to ask, and I stole them from another podcast, All right. which I don't okay. mind mentioning. But um, so it's a pair. One of these like yes names. You know, <laughs> it'd be weird if that was your answer, but you can answer that way if you feel like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's something that it's a pair? One of them is what's something that you hate about your job, and the other is what's something you love about your job. What do I hate about my job? Um, I hate coming. I hate being away for a couple of days and returning to a mountain of email. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hate those. I hate those days where you don't feel that you actually really do any science. You just do. You just do admin jobs. Mm. Right. What do I really love about my job? Um, I love. I love engagement with other scientists. I love the work. Like I love going to see mm. and being immersed by by both the kind of beauty of the of the southern ocean and all its in all its forms whether that be calm or rough or icy or whatever and I, but I, and I also just love engaging with people on the ship both scientists and you know crew who have great experience of 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 you know great stories about the ocean yeah we're in it i mean yeah when you're when you're doing it when you're in this field work process you're in it you're in you know you're yeah. doing oceanography yeah you, and you really have you're getting that, your hands dirty yeah you really have that feeling of you know and i'm glad i got to experience this a little bit because it's not a normal part of my job but you yeah. really get a feeling of like yeah because you, you're kind of manually putting you know your muscles into it yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. you're manually yeah. doing stuff and yeah filling containers of water up and sealing them up and writing stuff down and it just uh gives you a really yeah physical sense of yeah i'm doing it i'm doing oceanography this is what oceanography is yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, the data analysis and the writing and the more office job parts of it are super important, and yeah. that's that's essential too. And that's mostly what I end up doing. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it can be great to kind of have that adventure to go out there, and it, it is one of the ways we're privileged. So it kind of puts a responsibility to get back to the where we started about the privilege conversation. It puts a responsibility on us to try to um, learn as much as we can from that and to share as much of that knowledge as we can with the rest of the the world to kind of you know give give people a good value for their give for their money for you know paying us to go off and do these things and I mean I love the fact that it becomes just a little kind of floating island of science as well. Yeah. That's what I really like about it. Like you know, away from the away from the mundaneness of you know catching the bus home or you know or you know you know or, or you know dealing with dealing with you know random office admin jobs or whatever. Right. right. You know, everyone there can just really 
kind of focus on what they're doing. Floating laboratory. Yeah, yeah floating laboratory. Absolutely. You're leading your first cruise soon. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel about that? I know. It's kind of scary. I was like, you know, what? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like a grown-up now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be super. Uh, yeah. It's going to be super fun, actually. Um, I'm actually really looking forward to it. I've got. A, I'm surrounded by a really nice bunch of people. Um, so yeah, we're so we're doing a we're doing a one of our one of Bass's long um, term hydrographic sections mm-hmm. south of South Georgia. Um, so these are the big kind of. Um, uh, yearly sections that we occupy to look at ocean properties in yeah. the southern ocean. Yeah, you go look at the same part of the ocean every year. That's right. Where you get a lo- nice long record of here's yeah. how this bit of the ocean has changed yeah. over the past. That's right. You know, few decades. So, so we're doing that, but we've also got it's an exciting cruise because we've also got some uh, mooring deployments happening at the same time. So we talked about mooring strings earlier in the yeah, conversation. Yeah. Um, so our, our moorings that that uh, monitor the the uh, densest waters coming out of the of the Antarctic, the bottom waters. So those are being uh, brought up and uh, the, the data downloaded and the instruments turned around and put back in the water for another year. Yeah. So that'll be a really... Turned around just means you then whatever maintenance you needed to yep. do to it and then you throw, re-battered throw them, them back in. Yeah, rebattered them, check the calibrations, all those kind of things, and yeah. then and check the instruments are still working, put them back in the water. Mm. Um, it's good that you said you've got a good group of people because I imagine, you know, I haven't been in this situation of being the, the PSO, but mm. I imagine... Often when you're in those leadership roles, I get the feeling that the best thing you can do is just try to surround yourself with good people and, you know, ingest their perspectives and try to, I've used that word a lot in this, in this podcast, but uh, yeah, try to take their perspectives on board and to, sometimes you will have to just make a decision, right? Yeah. About we're going to do this or we're not going to do this. Yeah. And that will fall on you sometimes. Yeah. But if you've gone through that process of, you know, trying to hear everybody's perspective and, and try, trying to be mindful of where everybody really is coming from and trying to balance everyone's different uh, interests and needs uh, then you know the, if, if you've gone through that process then it can I imagine feel natural then like well this is the natural leadership decision I would make because of you know, I've gone through the process you know what I mean like you go through a process yeah and I think I, I think part of the I mean you know we'll find out if this works or not <laughs> you know the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating with my with me leading this cruise but I think to me, I think the most, just from observations of other cruises, that the most successful cruises I've been on have been ones in which the principal scientist has been able to instill a sense of kind of collective identity amongst the participants. Yeah, so yeah. that you know we we we're, we're doing slightly different things, but it's all like a common mission effectively. Yeah. And I think I think if you can kind of instill that amongst your participants, you get much more kind of give and take about yeah. you know. Uh, you know, between between the groups about you know, particularly when it comes to you know, because inevitably things get time pressured and things get you know, and things you know, there's a big storm and it cuts two days off the science. You know, who takes that? Who takes that hit? Um, you know, and so and so, I think if you can, I think if you can instill a sense of like adventure and and kind of excitement about the cruise as a whole, it, it makes it mu- a much easier pill to swallow if you're asking people to. You know, if you have to ask people, you know, you're going to have to cut a bit of your science, you're going to have to cut a bit of your science, you know, yeah. in order to get the thing done. That's right. And I imagine some of it is expectation management, management. as well. You kind of, you know, early on you say, here's what we're going to do, but yeah. if, if this happens or if we lose a few days here from storms or whatever, then yeah. we'll, we'll need to think about making this kind of decision. You kind of map it out beforehand. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. give people, instead of just dropping a complete surprise on them. You can't prepare for every single possibility, but you can try to do some of that mapping beforehand. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you instill that sense of identity in a group of people? I was imagining a few ways to, to do it wrong. 
<laughs> but um, you know, kind of demanding it is, is a way to do it wrong. You know, I now demand that you form a cohesive unit and have a single identity, uh, sense of identity. And, I mean, I think I think I actually no. think I actually think one really helpful way is to actually take a good number of PhD students along on a cruise, yeah. because I think I think I think the kind of nice thing about that is that you. They, they don't come really with a set agenda mm-hmm. often in the same way that senior scientists do in cruises. Um, right, yeah. You know, because, they're, because they may be only tangentially involved with the project or whatever, you know, they have a little bit of a better sense of, you know, of, of, you know they view the cruise as being a kind of end in itself, mm. if, oh, that, yes. if that makes sense. Yes. Whereas if you're just one, if you're a senior scientist and just what, it's just one component of kind of something else that you're doing, then it can be very, you can end up being very narrowly focused. And so I think having a mix of individuals, including a lot of PhD students who, who view a cruise as an exciting opportunity in that way, is, is, is I think that kind, of in, that kind of infectious enthusiasm then infects the rest of the group. Hmm. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. So taking a mix of people you know, at different stages of yeah. their careers. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really good. And uh, Andrew Myers did a nice thing along those lines. Near the beginning of the cruise, we, mm. we watched The Life Aquatic together. And then yeah. he, at the end... Uh, he surprised us all. He had gotten us the red caps from that movie. Yeah. <laughs> red, you know, uh, caps with, with uh, Team Zisu badges on it. So that, was, <laughs> that was neat. That was uh, that was a nice a nice way nice to do touch. that. A nice yeah. way to instill that sense of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're doing something together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was a, that's a good way to good way to start. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, how do you feel? Good. You all right. Good. Anything else you want to talk I'm about? Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm afraid the camel are. It's a good thing the Camelar folks are here, but it does mean long queues at the uh, so it's fish and chips uh, day. Isn't it? Fish and chips, yeah, it's fish and chips day as well. So, um, yeah, anything else we you to talk about? Are no, it's great, right? great to chat now. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Uh, that's okay. I mean, it was kind of it actually ended up being a very different conversation to the one that we'd originally had, but it was it was it did fun. yeah yeah no I'll admit last last night I I maintained an optimism and a confidence, but I did have a couple moments of like oh well, we can't try to you know. Recreate what we have. It's not going to happen. That's gone. That's you know, yeah. That that's water under the bridge in terms yeah. of like that. The, so, we we. Oh, I, I wasn't really worried, but you know, you have a moment or two of like, are we gonna? How's it gonna go? Yeah. But I think that's just me. That's just like sometimes before you know doing these interviews, I have it always goes fine. There's never an actual problem, but I always mm. have a little in the background sense of like how's it going to go but I just use that as motivation yeah yeah <laughs> I just yeah. use that which yeah. may or may not be healthy but it, it works for a time <laughs> <laughs> thanks Alex alright cheers Dan yeah, see you soon see you uh, there you go my conversation with Alex Burley I hope you enjoyed that he's not on Twitter so if you want to get in touch with him you'll have to look him up his uh, British Antarctic Survey profile page is there just look for him you know alexander brearley alex brearley oceanography google can help you out there um but speaking of twitter i did want to give a quick shout out to a couple of accounts that uh well one in particular if you're interested in following the development of the mod rise polinia uh the potential mod rise polinia that may or may not happen this year um, there's a good account you can follow, and I apologize in advance because I know I'm going to get his last name wrong. Lars uh, Kaleski. That's probably not how you say that at all. But his Twitter account is at CICE, all one word, underscore DE. So CICE underscore DE. And uh, last year he did a lot of really nice posts about the development and persistence of that uh, Mod Rise Polinia. So that's a good account to follow. 
if you want to see what's going on there. Uh, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. I'll probably just be retweeting a lot of Lars's stuff uh, when the Modernized Polina stuff uh, happens or doesn't. Um, and you can give us feedback at Climate SciPod, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Talk at you later. Bye bye.